Let's turn together to Daniel chapter 9 to begin our time in the Word this morning. So back in Hebrew Scripture to the book of Daniel chapter 9. We're going to begin here. We won't spend the entire message in this passage, but this is going to be sort of the launching point for the message. So back in Hebrew Scripture to Daniel chapter 9. This chapter of Scripture is, without a doubt, one of the most amazing chapters in all of the Word of God. In fact, one commentary I read on the book of Daniel said this, and I quote, Daniel 9, 20 through 27 is the most amazing prophecy in the Bible, end quote. Not one of, the most amazing prophecy in the Bible. Sir Isaac Newton once said, quote, we could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone. And the prophecy he was referring to is verses 24 through 27 of this ninth chapter of Daniel. Now before we jump right into this prophecy, let's acquaint ourselves with the context of the book of Daniel. In chapters 8 through 12 of this book, God is depicting His sovereign rule over His own people, Israel. In chapters 1 through 7, God has already shown His sovereign rule over Gentile peoples. But in chapter 8, there is a shift of focus where God depicts His sovereign rule over His own people, Israel. Back in chapters 1 through 7, as God was describing and showing His sovereign rule over Gentiles, God revealed that there would be four Gentile world empires to rule this world. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. As Daniel receives this vision here in chapter 9, he and his people are in captivity to the kingdom of Babylon. That means that there were three more kingdoms yet to come. Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So as Daniel was thinking about that reality and contemplating what that meant, he began to have the question in his mind, Lord, Lord, how much longer will your indignation be against us? We know we are here in captivity in Babylon because of your indignation against us and our rebellion, but how long is your indignation against us going to last if you are saying there are going to be three more Gentile empires to rule this world? Well, God answers that question in Daniel's heart in chapters 8 through 12, and especially here in chapter 9, as God details to Daniel how long his indignation against his people Israel will last. With that in mind, let's move into this ninth chapter. Notice how it opens. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Daniel says this took place in the first year of the reign of Darius. That means that Daniel was about 80 years old at this time. He's been in captivity for over, well over 65 years. One day he was having his devotions, if you will. He was reading the scroll of Jeremiah. 
And all of a sudden, he came across some statements that say the Babylonian captivity will last 70 years. Jeremiah 25 says that, and so does Jeremiah chapter 29. Now remember, Daniel has been in captivity about 67 or 68 years, maybe a a tad bit longer. So he realizes, as he does the math, that the captivity is nearing its conclusion. And Daniel wants so badly to see his people released from captivity that it drives him to prayer. In verse 3, he says, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Unfortunately, time will not allow us to go into this prayer in detail. We've done that in the past. It is a beautiful prayer of confession and supplication as Daniel pours out his heart to God. As Daniel was praying, amazingly, the angel Gabriel interrupted him. Skip down to verse 20. He tells us, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So as Daniel was praying... Gabriel came to him to help him understand what God had in store for the future. That is detailed for us in this fascinating prophecy of verses 24 through 27. We're not going to go into all the details of this prophecy this morning because that's beyond our scope. It's not our purpose. What I want to do is I want to pull out one section of this prophecy and show you how it was specifically fulfilled by Jesus in his earthly ministry on the very day Gabriel said it would happen. But let me read the prophecy in its entirety, and then we will center in on that one part. Notice the prophecy. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks, or literally 70 sevens, are determined for your people and for your holy city. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, what is this prophecy talking about? It's really not as complicated as it may appear at first. 
The first thing I want us to notice about this prophecy is that it covers a very specific period of time. Verse 24 says it covers 70 weeks. A more literal translation, as I read and indicated when I read it, would be 77s. That's the literal Hebrew, 77s. So this prophecy covers a time consisting of 70 periods of seven. It can be demonstrated that the periods of seven are periods of years. So God says that this prophecy consists of 77-year periods. You do the math, it's very simple. It's a total of 490 years. Now we need to see the details of this prophecy. Notice what it says in verse 25. Here's the starting point. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again in the wall even in troublesome times. According to the first part of this verse, the starting point of this time period is when the command is given to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, we know exactly when that was. It was on March 5th, 444 B.C. On March 5th, 444 B.C., King Artaxerxes issued the decree to Nehemiah, it's in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem and then in following the, the city itself to be rebuilt. Notice that the prophecy says that from that point until Messiah the Prince shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. In other words, sixty-nine sevens, or do the math, 483 years. Many scholars believe that the reason these sixty-nine sevens were split into seven and sixty-two is because it would take the 49, 49, first 49 years just to complete the rebuilding of Jerusalem. After the wall was built, then the city, the street, and everything else, everything else in Jerusalem built over a 49-year period. But without getting lost in all the details of verse 25, for this morning, I just want you to notice that it clearly says that from that decree, from that point of the decree to the Messiah, there shall be 69 weeks or 69 sevens. Multiply that together and you get 483 years. Do you know what is so amazing about that? If you calculate 483 years, beginning with March 5th, 444 B.C., you will come up with March 30th, A.D. 33, or the 10th of Nisan of the Jewish calendar. You say, what's so significant about March 30th, A.D. 33? That was the very day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey and presented himself as the Messiah of Israel. We know that day as Palm Sunday. Jesus fulfilled this part of the prophecy with precise accuracy to the very day. That fulfillment is recorded for us over in Luke chapter 19. So turn with me from Daniel over to Luke 19 so we can see the fulfillment of this part of the prophecy. <clears throat> Luke chapter 19. The point, beloved, is this. Palm Sunday, the event known as Palm Sunday, was not just happenstance. 
It had been predicted hundreds of years in advance. Luke 19, 28 through 44 is the precise fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel 9, 25. Now this incident is recorded in all four of the Gospels, but I'm going to have us look at it in Luke's account because Luke records the details that we're interested in this morning. So we'll pick up the story in verse 28. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. We read, When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many were spreading their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Dr. Luke leaves one word out of verse 38 that is recorded in all three of the other gospel accounts, and that is the word Hosanna. The word Hosanna. The term Hosanna literally means save now. Save us now. That is very significant in this context. Let me explain what I mean. Keep in mind that this event is taking place in Judea, the southern part of Israel, right near Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives, just on the east side of Jerusalem. Verse 28 says that's where Jesus was heading, and verse 41 indicates that's his, his destination. At the time this was taking place, the Roman Empire ruled the world. Remember, Babylon ruled the world while Daniel was writing. Then Medo-Persia, Media, uh, Medo-Persia took over. Then Greece, under Alexander the Great. Then Rome. So Rome is in power When Jesus is in the midst of his public ministry, Rome had been in power for almost 100 years. And the thing the Jewish people wanted most, more than anything else in life, was to be released from the oppression and domination of the Roman Empire. In fact, they in their minds thought that was the reason why the Messiah would come. They thought the Messiah would come as a king and lead them in a revolt and lead them in victory over Rome. They wanted physical salvation, physical deliverance. They wanted release from the oppression of the Roman government. The sad fact is, most of the Jews weren't really interested in the spiritual salvation Jesus came offering. You know, as you stop and think about that, things really haven't changed, have they? It's the same way today. So many people in our society are only interested in following Jesus for what they can get out of the deal, for how it can profit or benefit them. 
Thus, they want to come to Jesus on their terms and not His. Their motivation is totally selfish. And the sad part about this is that we have Christians propagating that kind of thinking. The message of salvation has been so cluttered today by those who say, Receive Jesus and He will solve all of your problems. Receive Jesus and He will heal you. Receive Jesus and He will prosper you. Receive Jesus and He will give you self-esteem. Receive Jesus and He'll give you this. He'll give you that. Beloved, that kind of message simply appeals to the selfishness and pride of unregenerate man, which is the problem. We have no business feeding that. Unsaved men and women who have never come to terms with their need to humble themselves before God have a battle with self-centeredness and pride. That is the barrier between them and God. Instead of loving God, they love self. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. That's basic. That's fundamental. That's square one. That's the starting point. So when we ask people to come to Christ by appealing to their selfishness or their pride, we are just piling people on the broad road to destruction. That's not the way to present the gospel. When Jesus came offering spiritual salvation and deliverance from sin, most Jewish people didn't want that. Thanks, but no thanks. They didn't want their hearts changed. They wanted their circumstances changed. They wanted physical salvation and deliverance from Rome. And this is the same kind of thing that's true today. The sad reality is that most people in our society don't want spiritual salvation, salvation from sin. They don't want their hearts changed. They want their circumstances changed. Well, I might believe in Jesus if, you know, he'll give me a better job or give me a better spouse or give me something that I want. They want physical salvation, deliverance from sickness. Physical salvation, deliverance from their problems. They want God to prosper them. They want God to tell them it's okay and even right to love yourself and be self-centered. And sadly enough, some segments of Christianity feed that very kind of thing by the message they proclaim. Beloved, it is so grievous, so grievous to look around and see what is, what is represented today within Christianity as the gospel. It's a misrepresentation of the gospel. And it's basically a repeating of history as we see here. This is playing out right before us. Here the people are all excited because they're saying, oh, oh, look at this. This is, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the guy that's going to give us deliverance over Rome. They're excited on this day as Jesus rides toward Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, this is, this is the day that we know as Palm Sunday. On Friday, Jesus will be crucified. So as Jesus rides along, the people are crying out, verse 38, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. 
You see, Jesus is making his way, we were told earlier in this passage, from Bethpage and Bethany, which is sort of on the back side of the Mount of Olives. You can't see Jerusalem from there. But as you come from Bethany and Bethpage and come up to the top of the Mount of Olives and you crest the top, you have a beautiful view of the entire city of Jerusalem. So as he crowns the top of that hill that's called the Mount of Olives, as he comes up over it from the east side, he sees Jerusalem and he begins weeping. He begins crying. Verse 42, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Here we are given a glimpse of the great compassion of Jesus. His heart was broken Because he knew that even though the crowd was all excited at this moment, for all intents and purposes, the Jewish people had rejected him and his salvation. They didn't want him. Frankly, they didn't want him. That's what John 1.11 says. He came unto his own things, and his own people did not receive him. That verse in John 1, John 1.11, refers specifically to the Jewish people. He came unto his own creation, But his own people, the Jewish people, did not receive him. They didn't want him. You know why? One word. Religion. Religion. They were so busy with their religion, they didn't have time for Christ. Besides, what he said didn't fit into their religious traditions. It didn't fit into their religious perspectives. I've said this many times before, and I'll continue to say it as long as the Lord gives me breath. Religion damns people to an eternal hell. It is Satan's greatest masterpiece, his greatest work. It was Dave Brees who said, with the occult, Satan has trapped thousands. The occult, you know, worship of Satan and Satanism, demonism and magic and all that, witchcraft. With the occult, Satan has trapped thousands, but with false doctrine, he has trapped millions. People get so secure in their religion that they just won't listen. They just won't respond to the truth, especially if their religion has anything to do with the Bible. Because then they assume their religion must be right. Because after all, we quote the Bible sometimes. Tragically, there are Catholics, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, and many others under the umbrella of Christianity headed for a Christless eternity in hell because they are resting in their religion, trusting in their religion. The Jews miss their Messiah because of religion. And that broke the compassionate heart of Jesus. He wept as he saw the city, knowing what was coming their way. And he will talk about it in just a moment. You see this compassion of Jesus for Jerusalem in a couple different places in the Gospels. For another illustration of this, back up just a few chapters to chapter 13 of Luke's Gospel. Chapter 13. We'll pick it up in verse 34. This is our Lord talking, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. 
How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. What a vivid picture the Lord is painting with those words. I ran across an illustration of this passage in a book by Dr. Ron Allen and his wife Beverly. Listen as I read their comments on this, relating to this verse. They write, We have known these words from our youth, but it was only a few years ago that their full impact hit us. We live on a little farmlet, and usually we have a small flock of chickens among our animals. One day, one of our three Arakana hens was missing. These birds, believe it or not, lay eggs with shells of different pastel hues, pastel hues, green, blue, or pink. One of them was missing. It was the blue egg hen that was gone. Sometime later, our missing hen was found parading across the front yard, followed by 13 chicks. Since we had not scrubbed down the brooding room as yet, we brought the little chicks into the utility room to keep them safe for the night and put the hen back in the chicken yard. Then after scrubbing the brooding room carefully, we put the chicks on the fresh litter and we went to bring their mother to them. But which hen was their mother? All three looked about the same to us and we really didn't have time to wait for a blue egg. We put one hen at a time in with the chicks. The first two hens didn't even look at the chicks. They just pecked around a bit in the litter. Then we brought in the third hen. It happened so fast we nearly missed it. It was as though she was a high-power vacuum cleaner and the chicks were so many particles of dust. With a flourish, she had swept all 13 under her wings, all of them, and sat there daring anyone to try to take them away again. And then they closed the paragraph in their book by saying this, Only our urbanization keeps us from feeling the intense emotion and exquisite beauty of Jesus' words here in Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. That's the imagery Jesus had in mind when he said this to Jerusalem. Now let's go back to Luke 19 and hopefully we can better appreciate the emotion of verse 41 where we read, as Jesus drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. But then Jesus adds this statement in verse 42, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The interesting phrase in that verse is the phrase, this your day. This was Jerusalem's day. This was the day spoken of all the way back in Daniel 9.25. This was the day that God had marked out and predicted as the time of Jerusalem's visitation by her Messiah Prince. This was the day that could have brought peace to the people of Jerusalem if they had accepted Jesus for who He is because this day was the fulfillment of Daniel 9.25. It was also the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
That's why in verse 42, Jesus said, this was your day, Jerusalem. This was your day. It was their day, but they missed it. They didn't want it. So what's the result? Verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because, watch this, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus said, because you missed your day, you will be destroyed. The incident that Jesus refers to here in verses 43 and 44 is undoubtedly a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Less than 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, the Roman army under the direction of Titus came in and wiped out the city of Jerusalem. Listen to this extended description of of the devastation that occurred. And it is an extended quote because I I really want us this morning to catch the impact of why Jesus wept over Jerusalem, knowing that this is what was coming. Shortly before the full moon in the spring of A.D. 70, Titus appeared with 80,000 troops outside the city of Jerusalem, which was bulging from pilgrims who had come to celebrate Passover. Titus attacked with Roman artillery that threw huge stones against the walls. His army surrounded the city. When anyone tried to escape from it, they were captured and crucified. As many as 500 of them were nailed to crosses every day until the forest around Jerusalem had been depleted of trees that were used for making crosses, not to mention ramps, ladders, campfires, battering rams, and other siege machines. There was an unbearable stench because of the dead bodies from battle and starvation. Before the siege was over, thousands of corpses had been thrown over the wall by the survivors within the city. Josephus recorded the devastation in his History of the Wars of Jews. Listen to Josephus' description. He writes, The terrible famine that increased in frightfulness daily annihilated whole families of the people. The terraces were full of women and children who had collapsed from hunger. The alleys were piled high with the bodies of the aged. Children and young people, swollen with lack of food, wandered around like ghosts until they fell. They were so far spent that they could no longer bury anyone, and if they did, they fell dead upon the very corpses they were burying. The misery was unspeakable. For as soon as even the shadow of anything edible appeared anywhere, a fight began over it. And the best of friends fought each other and tore from each other the most miserable trifles. No one would believe that the dying had no provisions stored away. Robbers threw themselves upon those who were drawing their last breath and ransacked their clothing. These robbers ran about reeling and staggering like mad dogs and hammered on the doors of houses like drunk men. In their despair, they often plunged into the same house two or three times in one day. Their hunger was so unbearable that they were forced to chew anything and everything. They they laid hands on things that even the meanest of animals would not touch, far less eat. They had long since eaten their belts and their shoes, and even their leather jerkins were torn to shreds and chewed. 
Many of them fed on old hay, and there were some who collected stocks of corn and sold a small quantity of it for four attic drachmas. He continues, But why should I describe the shame and indignity that famine brought upon men, making them eat such unnatural things? Because I tell of things unknown to history, whether Greek or barbarian, It is frightful to speak of it and unbelievable to hear of it. I should have gladly passed over this disaster in silence so that I might not get the reputation of recording something that must appear to posterity wholly degrading. But there were too many eyewitnesses in my time. Apart from that, my country would have little cause to be grateful to me were I to be silent about the misery which it endured at this. End quote. By August of A.D. 70, Roman soldiers had gained access to the temple where they erected their banners and began making sacrifices to their gods. Murder and plunder of the city's remnants followed. At least 115,800 corpses were removed from Jerusalem in three months alone. Survivors were sold into slavery Jerusalem was totally devastated. Persecution continued for the Jewish people after the fall of Jerusalem in a single day. In a single day, 10,000 Jewish citizens in Damascus had their throats cut. Many others died as gladiators in Roman games. All this happened. All this happened because they missed their day. They refused their Messiah They refused their king. They refused his salvation, and the end result was total destruction. What other result could there be? No wonder Jesus wept when he saw Jerusalem and knew what was coming. What other result can there be? When when an individual chooses to refuse the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation, then that individual is choosing destruction. Maybe it won't happen in this life like it did for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, but it will happen in the next. But you know the saddest part of this passage to me? It's the last phrase in verse 42 where Jesus says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This was your day. If you'd been ready, But now it's too late. It's too late. For so long they would not believe. Now they could not believe. Let me show you this over in John chapter 12, the next gospel account. Because in John 12 we have the exact same story recorded for us in verses 12 through 15. But John adds some different details to this story and a different application. John chapter 12. Verses 12 through 15 record the same exact story of the triumphal entry of Jesus. But I want us to skip past it because we've already read that in Luke. And I want you to notice the application that John brings to this event. The application is a quote from Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 37. Way down in verse 37. But although Jesus had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. 
Because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Notice very closely that the end of verse 37 says they would not believe. Although Jesus had done so many signs, they would not believe. Then the first part of verse 39 says they could not believe. God's judicial blindness had set in. It was too late. It's like it's exactly what Jesus said back in Luke. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Do you realize? Do you realize that you can choose for so long that you will not believe, that your heart can grow so hard that you cannot believe? That's what this is depicting, that's what this is describing. This is a common thought in Scripture. It's in Isaiah 6, it's in Isaiah 28. It's in Ephesians 4, 18 and 19 where it speaks of those who are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart. Now listen to this. Who being past feeling. It's describing people who get to the point where they're past any feeling. The things of God don't prick their heart. The things of God don't stir their heart. They're just past feeling. They're numb to it all. In Romans chapter 1, we see the same thing. In Romans 1.21, it speaks of those whose foolish hearts were darkened. Then verse 24 says, God gave them up. Verse 26 says, God gave them up. Verse 28 says, God gave them over to a debased mind. Here in John 12, it says they would not believe. Then eventually they could not believe. God will graciously extend the truth of His Son only so long that He will judicially blind those who choose not to receive Him. In fact, some of the most frightening words in the Bible, in all the Bible, in my opinion, are found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's turn over there as we begin to wind down this morning. Turn from the Gospels to the Epistles, past Galatians Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> Verse 9 says, The coming of the lawless one. Now, this is an end times passage, a future passage. We're not going to necessarily focus on that. I just want us to see the principle, the application here. But Paul says the coming of the lawless one, better known to most Christians as the Antichrist, called in Revelation the beast, uh, called by a number of names, uh, son of perdition, etc. But he says here the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Stop there for just a moment. Please notice that Satan can do miracles. Satan can do miracles. In fact, these exact three terms that Paul uses here in this verse are the exact terms used to describe the miracles of Jesus and the apostles. He says, powers, signs, and wonders. The only difference is he adds the word lying. But it's the same word, same words. Verse 10, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. 
And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. What? That's what it says. God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not, here we go, who did not believe the truth. That's how you get to that point. That's how you eventually get to the point where God sends strong delusion. Because they did not believe the truth, but but rather had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 1. That people suppress the truth because they want to live unrighteously. Because they want to do what they want to do without having a guilty conscience. So they squelch the truth and press the truth and they throw it in a pot and put a lid on it and try to sit on top of it. Because they don't believe the truth. They don't want to believe the truth so they can have pleasure in unrighteousness. God is basically, just to, to paraphrase this, God says here, these verses are telling us that God says, okay, if you won't believe the truth, if you won't embrace the truth, then believe this lie. And when you do, you'll be damned. Why? Why? Because you wouldn't believe the truth. Instead, you'd rather have pleasure in unrighteousness. Do you see how dangerous it is to reject the truth of God? Do you see how dangerous it is to reject Jesus Christ? Do you see how dangerous it is to sit in church Sunday after Sunday thinking that you're simply postponing your commitment to follow the Lord Jesus? There is, I warn you, there is a point of no return. I can't tell you where that is. No one can tell you where that is. But there is a point of no return. If that's the choice you've made, I want to warn you this morning that you are in a very dangerous position. The end result is total destruction and devastation. Repent of your sin today. Come to the Lord Jesus and receive his forgiveness today. As we close in prayer, ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior on this Palm Sunday. Don't be like the Jews and miss your day and end up destroyed. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow our heads in closing this morning, guys, there are some who, who have not embraced the truth, who reject the truth to have pleasure in unrighteousness. So I speak especially to you today. If you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're here today and you know the truth, you've heard it at least this morning, and you choose to reject that, you put yourself in a very, very dangerous position. I can't say for sure, I can't tell you this for a fact, but who knows, maybe this is your day. Just as for the Jewish people, that day that we know as Palm Sunday, that was their day. And they missed it. And then it was too late. I urge you not to repeat that. Don't repeat that tragic event in history. Maybe this is your day. The day to surrender to Jesus Christ. To repent of your sin and embrace Him. Receive His truth. Receive his forgiveness. Receive him personally as Lord and Savior. 
You can do that right where you are seated in the quietness of your own heart. If you will just call out to the Lord. Romans, Romans says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just call on him right there in your own heart. Jesus once told a story about two men who went up to the temple to pray. To pray, One man was very self-righteous. Look at all that I do. The other man, it says, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He just kept his head bowed and his eyes were closed and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He cried out to the Lord and Jesus said, that man went home justified. That can be you today. You can go home justified if in humility and repentance you will call out to the Lord for his forgiveness, his salvation, and his righteousness. And Father, we would especially pray that for any here in our midst who don't know Christ, who you give them another day, another day, this day, to respond to the truth, to respond to the gospel. May your Spirit accomplish that in them this day. And for those of us who by your Spirit and by your grace have been brought to repentance and been brought to humility, we acknowledge that it is your work and it's not our doing. We don't take pride in it. We don't boast about it. We are humbled by the fact that you have brought us to repentance and brought us to humility. May we walk in that. Walk in your grace and walk in humility. This is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.